Hey everyone! First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Jodie Lee Trembath, and I am here today with my fellow familiar strangers, Ian Pollock. Hello, Jodie. Simon Theobald. Hello. And today we have a special guest filling in for Julia. This is Shamim Mayun, and he is one of our newest members of the team he's going to be working on our new video project which i basically just teased that to you so lucky you you get to be the first to know that maybe we have a video project coming and he works on the anthropology of afghanistan so shmeem welcome thank you jody so guys let's jump straight in ian what are you thinking about this week I've been thinking about something I finally got around to this morning that I've been meaning to do for a long time, which is to send a package back to the family that I lived with when I was doing my field research in Indonesia. Keeping that relationship up is definitely an ambition that I've had ever since leaving, and I haven't had an opportunity to go back now for two years. But I've always been thinking about them. I sit in my office every day writing about these people, remembering them, and appreciating the stuff that they shared with me. When it came time to actually put a package together, it was a little bit difficult to think through. You know, these are people living in rural Indonesia. You know, you don't want to cause jealousies in that community because there's so many people there. There were so many people who helped me out. I can't get a present for every single one of them. And I didn't want to get things that would create any kind of conflict in the family or in the community. So, you know, thinking it through, what I ended up with mostly was just like sending small things for the kids like sticker books and crayons and stuff like that, because they've got, I think it must be a two and a four-year-old by now. And that seemed like an appropriate thing in a way to like make a gesture of appreciation to the family that wouldn't cause any kind of division or strife. But what I want to know is how you guys think about how you maintain relationships with the people you did your research with a long time after you leave the field. And what are the kind of considerations that go into how you keep those relationships going? Yeah, I mean, I have struggled with that. And, you know, it's something that crosses my mind every day because like you, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm working from field notes and interview transcripts and that kind of thing. So I'm basically still living with people even, you know, inside a year and inside of my head a year mm-hmm. or, or two years after I last saw them and inside of my head a year or, or two years after I last saw them. And so I get flashes of nostalgia and just wish I was, wish I was back there having a cup of tea, you know, totally. so it's like, oh, I've got to contact so-and-so, I've got to message so-and-so and that kind of thing. Can now, you? Can you message them? Yeah, well, I mean, nowadays it's, it's all Facebook. Facebook's so weird because Facebook started off as just like this cool thing for the kids, and now like, and now <laughs> the kids, it. and now the kids are like Facebook's for old people, right? Um, <laughs> but, why but, I and, know and now it's it. such a, just like this normative mode of communication. But it's something I think about often. Actually, consumes my thinking far more than than I do spend actually right. calling, contacting people. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps writing too. <laughs> what about you, Simon? Uh, I actually talk to my informants probably at least once every week, if not more. All of them? Uh, my close ones, yeah. Wow. My two closest informants in Iran, I probably talk to once every three days to two days, maybe. What do you talk about? Just shoot the breeze. I, to be honest, I often ask them Persian language questions. So I'm like, what does this grammatical point mean? It's interesting for me because I know other people have said, you know, coming back to the field was 
traumatic in the sense that they thought they'd never see these people again and sometimes that's the case but for me it certainly wasn't like I've gone back to Mashhad I've stayed with people who I saw before I think they kind of have a basic assumption that I'll go back every two years is that what you have in mind yeah I'd like to I'd like to go every year if possible I would also really love to spend more time in my my field site and in part it's and it's part because I really like it there, but also with that idea of building a research relationship that spans decades in the way that I look at like senior staff around here that have been going back to some of the same places and talking to the same people for 20, 30, 40 years. They've learned so much and seen so much change across that time. I don't know how they maintained those relationships at a distance in a time before Facebook and internet communication. Mm. Well, you know, it also kind of assumes that a community remains at least relatively static, right? But yeah, I mean, obviously for my research community, the turnover, I I did my research in a university, the turnover is really high in that university. So already coming to the end of my thesis and the people that I did my research on are 90% are not there anymore. But of course, you know, social media allows you to have those continued relationships to some degree, but also because what I'm doing is a paraethnography so that I am researching people who do research it also means that like when I go to a conference I am potentially going to be presenting about somebody who is in the audience so keeping up that relationship for you is not just about maintaining relationships not just about maintaining friendships or something like that but actually also about discussing the subject of your research yeah it's almost like speaks to sort of like the changing nature of what the field is if we're able to still communicate with participants and informants then. Yeah, it's porous. Yeah. Mm. The boundary is porous. Yeah. Mm, That's a really nice way of looking at it. Thank you. All right, Simon, what are you thinking about this week? I'm in the process of finishing up my PhD, right? I sent my thesis to my mother. Now, that's not that strange, first of all, because she's my mom and she wants to read my stuff. But secondly, she's also an editor by trading. And she said, you know, oh, I thought it was really good and interesting and, and here's all these changes, blah, blah, blah. But one thing she said is I still find anthropology's method difficult. I don't get how you guys can make such a big deal out of a handful of examples. And it's something that occurred to me when I first started doing field work. I was like, I should do some statistical data analysis. You know, mm. I should do some surveys, talk to a whole lot of people, make sure that this is a kind of consensus thing. And then I met an anthropologist in Iran who was like, what are you doing with a survey? Anthropologists study the dust under people's feet. Don't bother with this stuff. Mm. And so at that point, I was kind of like, all right, well, I'll just muddle along here and do what I've been doing. But it does ever so often come back to haunt me. I often think, you know, how much data do we need to collect before we can say what we're saying is is reliable, is my question. And is this a kind of anxiety that you guys have as well? It's absolutely a kind of anxiety that I have. And it's had practical implications for me. So I chose my field site in part because I had been there before and I had had an interview with a guy there who said to me, we in this place, there are these objects, we think of them as traditional objects, and we prefer to trade them in a traditional way. And so I really latched onto that, trading traditional objects in a traditional way. You know, there's barter and these ritual things. I really latched onto that, and I made it the subject of my research, and I did all of my lit review and stuff preparing to write about that. I went to the field, and nobody ever said that to me again. And when I brought it up with people, they're all like, no, we don't think that you can really spin off into flights of fancy and theoretical wonderlands about what turns out to have just been what one dude said. You didn't even understand the context he was saying it in. I guess my question is, does, does what one dude said matter 
I would say yes. Yeah, it does. What what your mum said, you know, how can you draw infer so much information from one example? You're not really doing that. You know, you've been socialized into Iranian society. You know, you've got masses of data. What the person reads is not what you know. They're, they're, it's not the synthesis of information that you know. They're reading the examples that you've presented to demonstrate a certain point. That's hard for a reader, though, because, like, are they just supposed to trust you? Exactly. I think that's a good question to ask as well. How do they know? That, that what, you know. How do they know what you know? How do they know that you're right? And that's Goetz's whole thing, right? Like, so the the idea in anthropology of our method being about being there and the reason that we write in this kind of evocative narrative style is to persuade the reader that you were actually there and that's what gives you the legitimacy to make the claims that you make. Yeah, I mean, the example I was using was what are called fast money schemes, and some people that I knew were involved in these fast money schemes. And I was trying to position them as something that was not just society gone wrong. Like the, get rich quick kind Get of rich stuff, quick right? schemes, yeah. Like the kind of occult nature of fast money, that kind of thing. And I was like, well, the people I knew were actually doing was kind of pressing these schemes into stories of personal betterment. It was all about how they were educated in the process and about how it made them into better, ultimately more perfect people. And in doing that, I can say, well, it is just my example. I didn't ask every person who was in a get-rich-quick scheme in Iran. All I can talk about is the evidence that I have in front of me. Which brings me back to my original kind of question, which is how is this data relevant to people who are outside of anthropology? Anthropology asks particular kinds of questions that are suitable to the kind of data that we produce. So an economist might look at Iran and say, look, there are these schemes right? There are these various money-making schemes people engage in. If they were to call it a get-rich-quick scheme, that would be like a moral judgment. And they're not in a position to make that judgment because they don't know from their surveys, they don't know from looking at their big data, what those things mean to the people who engage in it. If you want to know what it means to the people who engage in these schemes, you have to spend time with them. You have to be with them. It's not the kind of question that can be answered with a survey. Yeah. And I think... We're not always trying to prove something. Like economists are trying to make generalizations about things that prove things about the world, but not all research needs to do that. I think our role as anthropologists is to is to problematize and to say, okay, the statisticians have made these broad claims. And that's an important thing to have done. But there are exceptions and there are ways that that can be interpreted differently. And so the reason that the work that we do is important is because we provide that other perspective where we say, here are those exceptions, here are those fringe cases, and here is the the meaning that we can attribute to that, as Ian said. So, like, I think I think both sorts of research are really important. But I think a lot of the time society only values the statistics yeah the statistics and the economists and this sounds like we're bagging out economists and we're totally not economists we love I am, you i am bagging out economists don't stop listening to us please economists shut up simon we're moving on thank you for your segment <laughs> what have you been thinking about this week i've been thinking about something that i've been seeing in the news a lot recently and this is the new zealand news i'm, mm. I'm a new zealander living in australia and one thing that's been big in the new zealand news is this air new zealand safety video that's caught a lot of flack from a lot of people in New Zealand, from the government, from the media, and has just 
recently been pulled by New Zealand with them quietly moving on to something uh, not so cringy. So what the video basically is, it's a Kiwi safety version of a very iconic rap song from New York from the 1980s called It's Tricky by Run DMC. It's tricky! It's tricky, 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 tricky. tricky. Okay, transform that to it's kiwi. It's kiwi, 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 kiwi. And then what should be on an air flight safety card transformed into rap music. And, and I'm not I'm not going to abuse you guys with all the lyrics, but this oh. is one that's been quoted in the news. Business premier, I see you folks working. Sit upright, hands on thighs, feet to floor. It's just like twerking. Okay, I, I'm... <laughs> I, it's it's uh, not a twerking at all. I, I, I smashed it. I, 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 oh, I didn't no. do that well. Oh, I'm, not, no. I'm not a rapper. Oh, how but, you but, say but, that? But, but, but all I can say is that I was sitting on the flight and the whole flight was just dead silent. People were sitting still in their seats. Air stuff was standing there just like still like statues while like this really bizarre otherworldly rap safety video was playing. And it was the most uncomfortable thing I've experienced. So people weren't dancing? No one was moving. That's No weird. one was moving. Uh, any, anyway, anyway, so coming back to the point. Yeah. Why do we cringe? Why do we intuitively feel like some sort of boundaries been crossed that it shouldn't have been done? Is it though? Is it like... I haven't intuitively cringed yet. Maybe you loved is, it. You I loved, loved it so she, deeply. Yeah, she was dancing. I, w- I was, I was appalled. <laughs> I was cringing. Yeah, I was definitely cringing. Look, I, I'm not well positioned to talk about about rap. It's not a thing I know a lot about. But this specific rap that this was coming from is from the 1980s in the outer boroughs of New York City. It's from a very specific time and place and politics and especially racial politics. Mm. And so to see it moved completely out of that context, for one thing. For another thing, to be commoditized to a bizarre and surreal degree, such that it's like it's now associated with like a national flag carrier airline talking about safety, which is like the squarest possible and most conformist thing that it could possibly be. So whatever it was originally has been completely defanged. But also that in this music video, it's a it's a mixture of a Polynesian and and white. New Zealanders, to map the racial politics of the original song onto a clearly presented racial politics of New Zealand and what it is to be Kiwi. It's Kiwi, 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 Kiwi. Mm. I, there's got to be some deep dissonance there. It just made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Simon and I are like giggling because because Ian went Kiwi, 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 Kiwi. <laughs> I mean, look, I totally see your point, but at the same time, isn't this what satire does? Like the point of satire and the point of humour even, or maybe just the structure of humour, is to take two things that are so different as to be absurd and juxtapose them. And that's what this ad does, right? It takes this very iconic, as Shamim described it, this iconic 80s rap song, which to someone who's outside of America seems like the quintessential American cultural icon of rap. And then it juxtaposes that with Kiwi culture, which is like this dry sense of humor and these kids are dancing around and it's dorky and they're wearing like fluoro clothes and it's I mean it's just so exactly the opposite of what the original song was that it's absurd and can't possibly be like it can't possibly be taken to be making fun of the original song it's so clearly making fun of itself is, is it cultural appropriation it's tricky <laughs> <laughs> nice one Ooh. Uh, Ooh. people have been appropriating other people's cultures since the dawn of 
culture. Mm. And at the same time, I understand that there are people now who are in positions of a lack of power versus people who are in greater positions of power. And they feel like they don't want elements of culture that are important to them to be taken and used in particular ways. I totally sympathize with that. But I think that in this instance, this is just New Zealand being the daggy Kiwi thing that it kind of does. It actually it surprises me that it's caused such an uproar. And I think we just have a sense that there is a racial, there's a politics to it and especially a racial politics to it. And that we don't, as the four people that we are, that we don't totally understand it. And it makes us uncomfortable because we don't know what it will mean to people. I'm not convinced that race is the key issue here. I don't, ah. I, I think it might, for me, the key issue might be commodification. Like there's something we find inherently wrong about huge corporations and New Zealand is a, is a huge corporation taking something that's a, it's like, it's like a music an, of, an art form of protest. A protest and defiance. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's ground up. It's a roots of movement, you know? And there's something inherently wrong about a corporation co-opting that yeah. to, to send yeah. the, the squarest possible message. Sometimes memes are on point, though. Yeah. And you're like, damn, said corporation, that's a good meme. I just think in this instance it happened to, like, fall flat. But I don't... Except with us. (laughs) Except with Simon and I. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, I think you've got a good point about commodification there and I can't really fault you on that. So I guess you win and we will move on to me, which means I win because now we're going to talk about... Well, actually, I want to talk about the idea of liminality being addictive. So liminality is this idea that when you are in an in-between state, say... When you are a teenager, you're in between being a child and an adult. When you are doing your PhD, you are in between being a child and an adult. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like those in-between stages. And the way that Victor Turner, who kind of popularized this concept in the 60s, the way that he thought about liminality was to say that while you were in that liminal state, that you were kind of unmade, that there was this period where the rituals didn't apply to you anymore and you were sort of unformed and it was very unsettling and the way that you then became the next thing was through this series of rituals that allowed you to then progress onto the next stage and out of that sense of liminality. So I was talking to Julia earlier and we were talking about this idea of whether or not doing a PhD was liminal but then we were like, well, when you get out into academia if you choose to go into academia you just stay liminal like you're probably going to be on a contract and even if you get tenure just the cycle of an academic year or a teaching year for teachers this applies as well is like you're constantly moving towards something there's always a new deadline there's always like an exam period coming up or you're moving towards the end of semester so you're always becoming something you never in a fixed state Why do we do that to ourselves? Is it possible that this is actually an addiction and there is something wrong with us that we cannot ever settle into just being something? Go. Two initial thoughts. Mm. The first is, I think in always and everything we do, we're always in a liminal state, and that's the product of the way we think we think dichotomously. Who's we in this scenario? Human beings. Okay. For For the most part, us, me and you. I think we're always in the state. We're always feeling in between something, and we're always going to feel pulled. And You're making the, the human nature the human, claim. Yeah, yeah. Oof, I think that's so. a big one. No, uh, I don't know. 
I don't know quite why I believe that. So, yeah, let's find an example which contradicts what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we really, do as anthropologists. Really. That's yeah, yeah. Just, uh, it, it, might be, it might be a language thing because we talk dichotomously. Anyway, we can talk mm. about that later. Okay. But the second thing I want to say is more importantly, mm. we should all come to terms with living in a liminal state. And that's how we find true peace and happiness. Uh, but hang on, okay, so why do you think that learning to live in a liminal state would bring us peace? We're always thinking in constant tension between we're not quite this and we're not quite that. And so coming to peace with being on the edge of something, coming to peace with walking on that tightrope, or with not having things complete or not only think, having things partial, I think that makes us a little bit happier. I know a lot of people who feel like they've been the same thing for, like, when my great uncle died he was 86 he'd been a tailor his entire career like he he was i don't think he would have ever described his life as liminal yeah yes yeah, but you're also you're i have a problem with the theory of liminality itself i think that culture is that's not how culture works in inverted commas i think that culture is made out of hundreds of thousands of individual refractions of people's own personal opinions so if someone says to you I feel like I'm in a liminal state when I'm in the hut in between being a boy and a man. That's fine. But someone else could say, Joe Bloggs has gone to the hut. He's having a dig. He's going to come out. Done. It presumes a monopoly of interpretation on a particular way of looking at culture. I think there are a variety of ways that people look at the PhD and the grad school experience specifically. That uh, So one of those would be that it is kind of a liminal state. It's something that you do in order to become something else, right? It's a piece of training that you get so that you can become uh, whatever high exalted position you want to have in industry, say. I think there are people who focus very much on being a graduate student as an identity. Like that is the thing that they wish they could remain. And that could be addictive in a way. Mm. But I think there's also people who come through this part of academia and it instills them with a fear that they won't be able to become the next thing. It sort of makes them forget the breadth of what they're capable of because you focus so deeply down into your own specialty and so deeply down into your own psyche and the weird way of working that graduate students mostly have of working by themselves and you get sort of deep into yourself and racked with doubt and guilt and you become afraid that you're not suitable for anything anymore, mm -hmm. but you can't remain what you are forever. So you think it's less addiction and more fear? Yes, I do. Okay. When we say it's potentially addictive, are we putting like a normative like value judgment on addiction there? Because maybe it's a good thing. Can well, can addiction be positive? Yeah, we're, we're I'm addicted to liminality. That's a beautiful thing, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. give me more. No one in the history of the universe has said. I'm addicted to liminality until it's, today. That's yeah, <laughs> right. You heard, you heard it here first. <laughs> addicted to liminality. Yeah. We could sing a song about it. Yeah. And then we could sell that song to a New Zealand. This is my vein here. <laughs> Injected. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that wraps us up for today. Yeah. Tell us which kind of graduate student you are. Are you the one who just wants to be what you are forever? Are you just really looking forward to becoming the next thing? Or are you terrified that there is no further thing for you to become? I am the third. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank you, Ian. Thank you. I want to thank you, Simon. Thank you. And I want to thank our special guest, Shamim. Thank you, Shamim, for being here. Thank you so much. 
And I've been your host today. My name's Jodie Trembath. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify now. Woohoo! You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets. And you can look us up on Facebook and Instagram. We're about to launch a Facebook group so come check us out our music's by Pete Dabro special thanks today to Nick Farrelly Will Grant and Maud Rowe thanks for listening and until next time keep talking strange bye 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 bye, bye. bye.